This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. It's my pleasure uh, to briefly introduce our speakers this evening uh, who are engaged in important and inspiring work. Uh, to bring facts, facts that are gleaned from rigorous and disciplined research, uh, to the discussion about uh, the the issue of obesity, uh, in particular the epidemic of obesity that really is, uh, I think, occupied uh, much of the the dialogue around healthcare these days. First, uh, Kim Belshi, who is the secretary of the California Health and Human Services Agency, and I'd ask each of the panelists to come up uh, onto the dais as, uh, as I introduce you, if you wouldn't mind. Is Kim here, I hope? There she is. <laughs> uh, she serves as the, on the governor's cabinet and as his chief advisor on health, social services, and uh, rehabilitative policies, and is responsible for providing leadership and oversight of the agency's efforts to promote health and well-being for the people of California. Kim, welcome. Deborah Cohen is a senior natural scientist at RAND. Her areas of interest include how structural environmental factors, social and physical, influence health. She's a very prolific writer and has written about how community characteristics affect eating and has many intriguing ideas about how governments and individuals can curb obesity. Uh, Jack Condi is President and Chief Executive Officer of the California Restaurant Association, representing restaurants in Sacramento and explaining how proposed policies will affect these small businesses. He serves as a board director for the National Restaurant Association, the Council of State Restaurant Associations, the California Tourism Commission, and the California International Relations Foundation. As well, he serves on the Collins College of Hospitality Management Board of Advisors. And finally, certainly not uh, least, our moderator tonight is Roland Sturm. Roland is a senior economist at RAND. His research has focused on how urban design and neighborhood characteristics affect lifestyle and health, the effects of obesity, physical activity, smoking, and problem drinking on healthcare costs, changes of mental health and substance abuse services under managed care, and effects of the parity legislation for behavioral health care. Most recently, he and Deborah researched a proposed fast food ban that was proposed by the LA City Council and found that it would have little or no effect on curbing obesity in that particular area. So Roland, uh, I look forward to turning it over to you to begin our program this evening. Thank you very much. Great. Good evening and welcome, everybody. Uh, we'll have one hour, and my job as a moderator is try to split the time equally between the four of us, which I hope to do. In the last 10 minutes, you get, not fit 20 minutes, you get to ask questions. Um, before I start the quest, uh, debate, uh, I'll drone on for just a little bit about setting the, the stage and why, why we're doing this. Well, obesity is not a new topic, right? I mean, anybody who has been alive in the last five years has seen that many, many times. Um, that has actually not always been the case. And when I started working in this area, that was more than 10 years ago, nobody cared about obesity. It was not on the radar screen. Well, where does it get us to? Um, we need to keep an open mind because policy issues change quickly and <clears throat> conventional wisdom is an awfully unreliable guide for decision-making. I'm not saying it's, a, it's wrong, right? It's always wrong. I'm just saying it's unreliable because you never know when... Uh, Conventional wisdom will really guide you astray. Uh, I think the obesity is, was a, is a good example. Like I said, about 10 years ago, I started working on this field, not because I care about obesity per se, but because I like to figure out what's going on in the world and analyze data. Uh, then we did a big survey, and the hot topic was the war on drugs. There have been other wars since, lots of them. It's hard to keep track of all the wars. Um, but it was the war on drugs, and we had a big national study going on on health, um, care, and health-related, and how this is changes between areas and over time, focusing on mental health, substance abuse, illegal drugs, alcohol, tobacco, 
the usual suspects. And the funder, which was the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, they really, you know, they were big on the war on drugs, and they assumed this is the biggest problem uh, for the U.S. Now, uh, we know there are lots of things that are bad for your health, right? This is no surprise. Um, and you get this constant din of health warnings that you shouldn't do this or that. Um, and sometimes it's really hard to figure out what it really matters. And that's what I wanted to do. So what really matters? What are the important parts? And so I compared the different health problems. And guess what I found? What is the worst health problem for the U.S.? No, no, it's aging. Um, <laughs> uh, because the worst you can do for your health is get older. So the first thing I found was, of course... When you're 20 years older, that's not good for your health. Uh, but on the other hand, the, the next thing, and that was striking, uh, close up after aging from 30 to 50, 20 years, came, came obesity. And uh, in terms of health care costs, in terms of chronic conditions, in terms of quality of life. Now, the other outcomes you might be interested in, mortality, and so I didn't look at those. But here, obesity was really there. Smoking was nowhere near. Alcohol abuse now, that's pretty serious stuff, nowhere near, if you look at chronic conditions. Um, again, at that point, hardly anybody cared about this, but I thought, well, you know, we need to follow up on this. So the point is, let's keep an open mind, and that's what we try to do today. Let's try to keep an open mind for new ideas which change. Um, and we managed to make sure that we don't agree with each other, because nothing is worse than if you have four speakers that egg each other on, on conventional wisdom and um, go to more hilarious things. So like I said, in, in the late 90s, um, nobody cared about obesity. I went to the um, obesity, con obesity Society, and there were a few hundred. It was a room that wasn't really much bigger than here. This year, I'm invited back there, and now they have a four-day conference. Um, they booked several hotels for the uh, rooms, and it's actually in Stockholm. Four years late, later after I did this, uh, finally it became headline news, obesity. Time magazine in 2004. So it took a while. And since then, you know, we've heard about it. Okay, back to some action here. Uh, now we know that obesity is really a big health problem, and we've got to do something about it. And uh, what should be done about this? Is there really a role for government? And that's where I have the question for our first speaker. What is the role of government, and what are we going to do in California about this? Or what should we do? <laughs> well... <laughs> As you can see, government has been doing a little bit here and there on this issue. Uh, and in all seriousness, everything you, you noted, Roland, is so true in terms of the, the, the war de jour, if you will. Um, but each of the issues you, you touched upon are really significant, compelling public health challenges. And um, the state has um, had quite a bit of experience uh, in terms of addressing individual behaviors. And one of the lessons that, that we've derived from our experience over the years is that if you really care about behavior change of an individual, you have to look at the individual in the context of the environment within which they live. Because, yes, at the end of the day, what we do as people is our responsibility. But you can't divorce that from the reality that our environment influences the choices that we make in terms of what's available, what's affordable, what's secure, etc. So from Governor Schwarzenegger's perspective, and this is an issue he cares a lot about. When I interviewed for this job um, a number of years ago, uh, we talked really about two things. Uh, one was um, providing health insurance to all California's children, and the other was this issue. And I was very impressed by his um, intuitive understanding of the environmental complexity of this issue. And that, yes, it's the individual, but we have to work together um, to help support an environment that facilitates uh, more regular physical activity, healthier nutrition choices, more responsible individual decision-making. And so the approach he has taken is that, yes, absolutely government has a role. And we'll talk probably in the course of our conversation about different steps the government has taken um, from trying to put better information out or making information about uh, nutritional choices more readily available, such as uh, a law that I think Jot and his, his team weren't real wild about in terms of uh, mandating um, the, the, the labeling of um, food and fast food restaurants and uh, retail uh, with caloric and, and related information. Um, to steps that the government has taken in terms of the environment within which kids spend the better part of their day, which is the school. So signing legislation, banning junk food and uh, sodas from the, 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 the school environment. 
the governor's put into place laws to help facilitate access in lower-income communities to healthy and fresh fruits and vegetables, such as uh, implementing changes in the Women, Infants, and Children's, the WIC program, which is a, nutri a supplemental nutritional program, or creating incentives to bring um, uh, farmers' markets into low lower-income communities. So there's a variety of things government can and has done, recognizing that it really is about environmental change and the individual in that environment. Um, but he's also been very clear that if we are going to make progress in, in California shedding what we estimate to be the 360 million excess pounds we as a state have gained in the past 10 years, that that's a statistic that um, does invite a certain amount of introspection about our respective contributions to this, this problem. Um, but if we're going to shed those excess pounds, it's not just about government. It's about business. It's about schools. It's about community organizations. It's about families. It really is a collective responsibility. So hopefully we'll get into a little bit more about the role of the individual and the private sector versus the role uh, of government. Yeah, I, I think I have a follow-up question for you yeah. directly. But let's jump over to Jod. Um, now, a lot of policies have recently been passed. So pick the one you hate the most and <laughs> tell us why it's wrong. Where do you want to start? We could, go, <laughs> we could do the sodium ban in New York. We could do the trans fat ban, which, you know, is uh, controversial. But, I mean, of course, nobody likes trans fat, and we're not trans fat supporters. And then there was the, the, uh, the ban that uh, occurred a few years ago, uh, fast food restaurant expansion in uh, South L.A. Okay, I, I, you know, sodium I would like to debate with you, but okay. we have to save it for another All time. Right, because well, we just okay, did we'll some research that on, on, on that the end of the sodium list. part. But, so so how, how about you go for... Well, you know, I guess the, the question for us is, it, what's the role of government? Does, yeah. does government have a role? And, and I will tell you, and, and Kim is right, we were uh, kicking and screaming um, in many respects on the menu labeling and eventually came um, out and supported it. And I st stood next to the governor and Kim when he signed it. And uh, he sort of pulled me over and made me make sure I got in the, in the picture with him when he signed it. Uh, <laughs> and I was trying to move off to the side. But, you know, ultimately we did. And we, we thought it was the right thing. And I, and I stand by it and I would support Uh, the expansion of it, which we are doing in Washington, D.C. right now. So um, somewhere hidden in a health care bill in Washington, D.C. that is currently on life support, there is a provision that would make menu labeling in the country uniform, uh, which I think is a good, a good policy. It's more information. And that's, that's kind of where, we, where our, our support of a lot of government intervention ends. We think Providing consumers with more information is, is absolutely good. And the role of go and, and government has a role, particularly at the state and federal level. They have a role because they have the capacity to, and the expertise and the experience in regulating uh, food safety. Uh, and, that's, and that's an important role that they have. I think we support their involvement in our business. Of course, we don't support a lot of government intrusion in our business. But when it comes to food safety, we absolutely do. It's important. Um, it's a public safety issue. Um, they are protecting the public uh, relative to food safety. Um, but at what point do they begin to protect the public from themselves? And that's uh, an issue that uh, we have with regard to you know, banning at the local level, particularly banning uh, certain types of foods or certain types of restaurants because uh, they think that consumers um, can't make a decision for themselves. Um, the, of course, the optics don't look good. Here I am at an obesity uh, a forum uh, representing the restaurant industry. I'm like, sort of like the proverbial skunk at the garden party, right? Um, um, well, we didn't get you a black hat, but well, maybe the but it's time. it's back there, right? And I and I recognize I wear it, and I'm okay with that. Um, but um, our industry uh, really, uh, I think, is leading on on many um, healthy dining and healthy food options. The trans fat ban is a good example. Um, we started seeing trans fat bans at the local level in California and ultimately in, in the state legislature and in other parts of the country. And we, we were opposing it, not necessarily because we thought trans fat was good, because we acknowledge that it isn't. It raises the good cholesterol and the bad cholesterol. Um, but it, it puts government on a slippery slope. When you allow them to start banning products um, in, in many cases, like we may see sodium soon, um, that are legal, approved by the FDA, but that they are bad for you. Um, and then they are limiting their use in, in, in a restaurant. So um, you know, we, we, we do believe government has a role, um, and we think it's limited, and um, 
you know, and I recognize that we have our battles at the local government level, but the, the challenge is that local governments in implementing these bans don't necessarily have the expertise to do that. And I would say that the, the fast food ban that, uh, in L.A., they didn't have all the information before they proposed a public policy. In many cases, the information that they used to, to promulgate their public policy was derived from newspapers and media uh, and then, of course, you have studies after the fact that, that show that maybe that wasn't such a good idea after all. They, they focused on a segment of the food service industry, the wrong one. They focused on restaurants. Then they found out that through studies and research that actually that region has less restaurants compared to the entire county on average and other parts of Los Angeles. Yet the convenience stores were three times the number in any other part of, of the county. That, to me, you know, is when you have public policy driven by public opinion. Uh, elected officials, in many cases, drive a lot of these policies, and they have, their, they have their finger in the air, and they will pivot with the direction of the wind if it looks like there's a poll that shows, for instance, a poll sh showed recently 85% of the people think that obesity is an epidemic. That's a winner for a politician. You address it somehow, but if you politically it's great and people will, uh, you know, love you and uh, support what you're doing as an elected official. Uh, I've uh, the week after the the fast food ban in L.A. Hap, uh, occurred, I spent more time on the uh, in one week on TV interviews than I did in the prior three years, and it was all about a fast food ban in a part of L.A. County. And this was, we're talking CNN, Fox News, Good Morning America. That was big. And shortly after that happened, you had elected officials uh, calling us, and then I would imagine communicating with uh, elected officials in Los Angeles and uh, uh, restaurant executives calling me from other parts of the country saying, oh my God, there's a city council member here in Toledo who wants to introduce a bill to ban fast food restaurants because he saw the coverage at the other okay, so there's got. a so snowball effect. There's a <laughs> snowball effect. So and let's it, let's let's see. We'll need to cut you off. Okay, sorry. Um, you're very good. No, my my defensive no. gland is is in full force here. So <laughs> you, you get me. another chance. Uh, but no, I don't even know what I should ask Deborah. But uh, you obviously, I mean, your research has been on uh, the issues about individuals and the environment, how these two things interact, and maybe you can comment on this and how this would relate to public policy. Yeah, I think one of the main uh, barriers to our country, our society, coming up with problems to the obesity epidemic is really a misunderstanding of the capacities and limitations that people face when it comes to eating. We all typically assume that people are consciously aware of what they're eating you know, when they're eating, how much they're eating, and that they consciously choose what they put in their mouths. We also assume that people have the capacity to ignore tempting foods, you know, and to resist. We think that everybody should be able to do that. And both of those assumptions are wrong. You know, first of all, we perceive the environment through our senses, and our senses are like reflexes. If we <clears throat> see an image or smell something or hear something, we will automatically, reflexively orient to that stimulus. We can't ignore it. We can't ignore it. We, it's, it happens before our conscious awareness, and we are very attracted to food. So if food is there, something related to food, we will automatically orient to it. Now, there's two ways that people get hungry. One is if they haven't eaten for four or five hours, you know, and their stomach's empty and a little growl and our blood sugar's low and we get jittery, we need to eat. I call that natural hunger. But the other way that we get hungry is what I call artificial hunger, and that happens when we see food. If we see food, it makes us hungry. It can cause us to salivate. It, you know, causes us to desire the food. And so what's happening over these past couple of decades, there's more and more food available. We have more and more images of food, advertising, more restaurants, and we are being artificially stimulated to feel hungry all day long. That is something that people cannot control. You know, you see food, it makes you hungry, you desire it. You can't control that uh, response to the environment. 
The other thing that people don't really recognize is that eating is an automatic behavior. Well, what do I mean by automatic? It means, what I mean is that it, it can occur without conscious direction. So we can eat food, and at the same time, we can talk to other people, watch TV, drive a car. And when we're doing that, we're really paying attention to the other person or driving the car, and we're eating automatically. We don't have to direct our hands you know, to bring food to our mouth. We do that without thinking. And I'm sure many of you had that experience where you might be watching TV and having a bowl of popcorn. You're watching, eating the popcorn. All of a sudden, the bowl is empty, and you wonder, well, how did that happen, right? You just you didn't pay attention, and so you're eating automatically. So you have no idea how much you ate you know, or what you consumed. So we are all subject to that. We can all eat without awareness. The other thing is that we're designed to eat too much. We are made to eat too much. That's why we have a physiological pathway that can turn excess calories into fat. And so we don't have any internal sensor that tells us you've had enough. You know, if you're given a larger portion, you just eat more. If you're given food with more variety, you just eat more. If you're distracted while you're eating, you'll eat more. If you watch other people eat, you'll eat more. I mean, we just automatically can function without being consciously directing everything we do. And, and this is a huge problem in a society where food is everywhere. And, and there's really just too much food right now. Uh, there's more food than we all need just to maintain our weight. And then the, the last thing I want to mention about our limitations is that we have a very limited capacity to make good decisions. We this is so can, depressing. <laughs> we can, I know, it's depressing. But, well, it's not but for the restaurant industry. Ding dong. But this, this is what's, I mean, this is really the way we are, and we have to make policy that can take into account the way we function. And so when we make decisions, we can make them automatically without thinking, without thinking through the consequences impulsively, or we can take our time and think through the consequences. And when we're overwhelmed with information or we're stressed or we're busy or distracted, we will make decisions automatically. And when it comes to food, when we're on automatic, we are more likely to choose things with hot, more calories and more fat. Hmm. And there's a great study I always love to tell people about. It's, uh, they tried to compare what kind of decisions people would make when they are, you know, have to think about something. So they had two groups. One group, they had them memorize a two-digit number. The other group, they had them memorize a seven-digit number, like a phone number. Then they asked them to choose either fruit salad or chocolate cake for a snack. So what happened? The people who had to memorize the seven-digit number were much more likely to choose the chocolate cake. And it was because they were preoccupied. They were thinking about the, chocolate, you know, the uh, numbers, and so they automatically chose the chocolate cake. And that happens to all of us, you know? We're preoccupied, we're busy, we're overwhelmed with information. We end up making the not good decisions. Okay, Kim, now, um, are you going to suggest that we should prohibit memorizing seven-digit numbers? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I'm going to go home with each and every one of you, and but, I'm going to monitor your food consumption. <laughs> no, <laughs> Because okay, it's, so let, it's clear from Deborah's research that none of us are to be trusted with our forks. <laughs> yeah, right, so let's put some meat on this. What, what do you think, which direction should we go? Will that Let be white meat, I trust? Environment. In environments. Um, what? No, I think it's it's fascinating um, research, and it really does beg a lot of questions about the, this tension between the role of individuals versus the role of, of government. Um, it, it underscores the power of information and the importance of information for for people to to inform their decision making. You know, it also underscores why ten years after national news of, around this epidemic that we're still grappling with it. We're making a little bit of progress, but we're not making a whole lot of progress. Why? It's really complicated. Yes, California has demonstrated that you can reverse tobacco usage. I mean, we are second in the nation to only Utah in terms of adult smoking prevalence. And we're second to Utah in nothing, I can assure you. <laughs> so something different... Mormonism, is, I think we're second. <laughs> something different is going on in California around tobacco. And we have demonstrated that community norm change actually can be accomplished through a variety of different strategies that government helps fund and provides leadership for, but ultimately is executed at the community level. And ultimately, it boils down to the decisions individuals make. 
And the power of information around tobacco is very clear. I mean, it's very black and white. You, know, you smoke, that's bad for you. Eating is a little bit different. And, and so some of the research that Deborah is sharing just underscores the complexity of dealing with these issues on the nutritional side, but also on the physical activity side. What is the role of government? The role of government is not to, to be totally a nanny state. I know most people think government's already too much of a nanny state. But I think government has a very important role to play in terms of information. And I think the menu labeling law is an example of that. There's a variety of what we call social marketing efforts that the state supports with a particular emphasis on lower income populations that rely upon public food programs. Social marketing meaning taking the power of public relations and advertising um, to sell a behavior, an idea, as opposed to a product. Um, so information, I think, absolutely is a part of the government responsibility. I think the school environment. Um, Government absolutely has a role there, and I think we've seen government be a lot more aggressive in terms of dictating uh, what is and is not available in schools, and that's why junk food and sodas have been pulled out. There's some additional challenges in our schools, and that's an area the governor uh, wants to focus, both as it relates to sugar-sweetened beverages, but also promoting water. It may seem axiomatic to say, you know, well, kids should have water. Absolutely. 40% of kids do not have access to, to clean, cold water in the places where they eat. I would argue, you know, that's a place where government maybe has a, a role to play. So part of it is the environment. Part of it is the nature of the intervention. Um, but I, I don't see government getting to the point of telling people really what they can and cannot eat. And I think that's one of the concerns that's been articulated with this idea of taxing soda, taxing snacks. There's actually, I think, a pretty compelling argument to be made for assessing a fee on foods and beverages that we know do result in um, uh, additional costs that, that society as a whole bears. Um, but where you draw that line uh, as it relates to food products is very different than saying very clearly a tobacco product is a bad thing and doesn't pose costs. Right. So those are some of the policy tensions. Now, what, what, what do you think the priority would be? Obviously, schools, and here the argument is that children are not informed co uh, consumers by any means, and so there is a role here for... From, from the governor's perspective, it's absolutely have been the children because of the role the government plays uh, as it relates to education and because of the importance of behaviors formed early in life, um, both as it relates to nutrition and physical activity. I know we're talking a lot about nutrition, but physical activity piece is absolutely indispensable. And it is appalling to see the data in terms of how little rigorous or even moderately rigorous activity our kids get when they are in school. Um, and because of what the data tells us about the problem. And it is um, truly um, shocking to see the percentage of kids who are overweight or obese at very young ages. And um, there are some very clear evidence-based interventions that can um, help address that problem. And government has stepped up, needs to do more. But fundamentally, it's also about the family. It's about the child themselves. You know, what's interesting is the um, – sorry to butt in um, – was that on the menu labeling law, the, the school districts, and I, and, I, and I get sort of the argument why they didn't like it, but uh, they fought it, and it doesn't, it doesn't apply in, in schools. Mm -hmm. where, and, and I think if you're going to educate kids, because we're, we're right there on, you know, there are other, there are other issues that the government ought to be uh, involved in, and they're empowered to be involved, and they have the authority to be involved in, and, and one of them is, you know, being more um, proactive in educating kids about, healthy food options and how to eat in moderation and learning about nutrition. And when the schools are the ones that come in um, through the law that was proposed uh, and supported by the governor to uh, put calories and nutritional information on the menu, the schools um, fought hard mm -hmm. to keep it out of the law. So now, and, and, that's, and kids may not in elementary school understand it, but if you start young and you start early and they see that in the you know, tater tots. There's X number of calories in tater tots. Maybe they'll go for the carrots instead. And if not, but at least it, it'll be ingrained in their, you know, in their brains. I, I okay. want to take issue gotcha. with that completely because I think we overestimate the role of education and training in our ability to eat properly. I mean, look around you. There are plenty of doctors, nurses, nutritionists that have weight problems. And who knows more than they about what people should eat and what they shouldn't eat? So this epidemic is affecting people that are experts, people that are you know, with PhDs, with a lot of education. I don't think education can solve the problem. The, the problem really happens at the point of purchase for people. When, they, when you see food, do you make a decision to eat it or reject it? It is very hard for people to reject food. 
because we are wired to eat food. And so we really need to have a much bigger view of what has to happen to control you know, access to food. You know, for example, what, one of the big things that have changed over time is where you can get food. Right now, you can get it at the hardware store, the car wash, <laughs> right, the gas station, every office building has vending machines. Does that make sense to have food everywhere that, you know, you can't go to the hardware store and not come home hungry because of the pistachios at the cash register. I mean, we really need to consider how we make food available to people. You know, so, so you suggest you should uh, really have a food license mean you, you are allowed to sell food and nobody else is allowed to sell food, sort of like the liquor store in some states, that, like well, that, supermarkets are not allowed to sell That is the case. Food. So That's... you need a license to sell food, but only perishable food. You can sell non-perishable food without a license, and I think we should change that. Good. So, so, Kim, if you took that to the governor, what would he say? <laughs> um, I probably shouldn't say out loud. Um, oh, <laughs> well, I, yeah, it, it's actually great. It's a great um, thought experiment. Um, we, we've got a really significant tension here, of course, between the roles and responsibilities of individuals and the roles and responsibilities of government. Um, I think many policymakers uh, would uh, view with alarm the prospect of government, whether it be at the local level or state level, dictating um, who can and cannot sell food. Um, you know, I th I, my boss, the governor, operates more from an incentives perspective, so some of the things he's been supporting recognizing that many of the things Deborah's saying is, is a problem um, in terms of food choices and how food is, is generally not regulated. Um, one of the real problems we have in our state, and we're not alone, regrettably, is that in low-income communities, um, you, Jot, you were saying about the, the abundance of convenience stores in, in South L.A. Um, I think the data also shows that there are very few supermarkets in, in South L.A. So it's hard for people to access fresh, healthy, affordable uh, produce in, in their communities, and they rely upon convenience stores. And so one of the things we've been working on is are there ways to create incentives so that convenience stores or the mom-and-pop stores have more capacity to offer fruits and vegetables, dealing with some of the barriers they're facing in terms of space and refrigeration. So I, I think my boss would approach it more from an incentives and choice perspective rather than government dictating what people can and cannot buy at particular venues. I guess we, we hear that a lot of the encouragement of fruit and vegetables, but, you know, we're talking about obesity, so people, shouldn't they be eating less than rather than more? And what's really the people evidence? People should be eating more fruits and vegetables, absolutely. And when you look at the demographic profile well, of low-income populations in terms of where they live and the food choices they make, in part because of availability and affordability, they make less healthy nutritional decisions that's, that's than, than higher-income folks. But, so, but, so then we look at what are the levers that public policy has, that government has. Food stamps, for example, is one of the means by which lower-income families purchase food. Well, you do it in, in the state through what we an EBT, an electronic benefit transfer card. We've been working with the farmers' markets around the state to enable people to use an EBT at farmers' markets where they're able to access fresh, fr fresh fruits and vegetables more readily. So it's, it's those kinds of more providing greater access and greater choice. Okay, uh, yeah, I want to disagree with Kim <laughs> on the role of government and its ability to regulate uh, businesses. First of all, we do regulate restaurants. This is maybe where you might have some comments. But we regulate them only for the prevention of infectious diseases. We don't regulate them to prevent chronic diseases, which are much, much more important than infectious diseases, but we could. Now, for example, if you want to avoid getting a nutritionally-related chronic disease like obesity or heart disease or something, there are pretty uh, clear guidelines on what your meals, what your food should look like. But you cannot go to a restaurant very easily and get a meal that will not exacerbate or cause a chronic disease. Oh, I because, do. <laughs> because most restaurants serve meals that are two to four times or five times as many calories as we need. They have too much sodium. They have, you know, too much fat. It's very hard, or they don't have a cup of vegetables or a cup of fruits. In fact, most restaurants don't even have fruit on their menu, and a lot of them don't have any vegetables except those that are deep fried. So I think we need to have some performance standards for restaurants that would have them have meals available 
that people could buy that they can, it, it can be um, labeled that these will not exacerbate or cause a chronic disease. Okay. That's, that's, yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it, and that's, that's true. Okay. And, and I think restaurants more than ever, even some of the fast, most of the fast food restaurants are providing offerings for customers that are low fat, low sodium, what they would term healthy options, whether they're salads or whatever. Of course, they have the salad dressing, uh, which will make it you know, much more caloric. Um, but they're, they're providing more options. And in many cases, the c customers aren't buying them. Now, is it because they're not marketing them? Um, you know, maybe, maybe that's the case. But consumers, in many cases, aren't buying them. And so then what's the answer? Mississippi is notorious for being the fattest state in the union. They regulate, you know, over the 30% 30, uh, 30 BMI. They're always um, number one relative to that. Uh, they, uh, they have, incidentally, the second to lowest uh, state restaurant population in the country. But, so the legislature uh, passed or, or proposed a law that would, re would require restaurants deny customers who are obese food, which is so ridiculous. But, and, and you laugh now. But 10 years ago, I remember laughing at the notion of menu labeling. And I think most public policymakers in Sacramento did as well. And over time, it became sort of, it went from sort of a fringe idea to a mainstream idea. Now, of course, the, the notion of, of government telling restaurant owners, protect your customers from themselves. If you see that they look morbidly obese, don't serve them food that's fattening. I mean, it's silly, but it sounds to me like that's what we're talking about here. No, that, that isn't what we're talking about. Well, I'm missing something. Okay, yeah. back to Kim first. Okay. See, her turn. No, it would be interesting, Deborah, your thoughts on, it sounds like your research has led you to look at um, the role of government in terms of regulating the availability of, of, of food in different environments. Where does your research take you in terms of the power or potential of incentives for individuals? That Are there not policy interventions that can engage an individual in a way that makes them pay more attention to the decisions they make because there's a cost to them um, for their actions. An example would be something that's actually pending in um, uh, legislation in Washington around health reform and um, something Governor uh, Schwarzenegger tried to advance in 2007 um, around health insurance benefits and providing greater flexibility for health benefits to be structured in a way um, to have people uh, undertake a health assessment that identifies uh, issues that may be related to their weight, smoking, alcohol, other issues. And then the benefit benefits are structured in a way to incentivize people to take more responsibility for their health and wellness, not just in terms of identifying a problem, but facilitating their access to the proper type of uh, clinical or non-clinical uh, services, and that there is a financial benefit to their taking more responsibility. So see, how, do you see, think think, about, how do you think about incentives okay, for so the individual? I, I think that's the crux of the matter. First of all, we're assuming that people who are overweight or obese lack willpower and that they, you know, there's something that they're morally inferior or, you know, have some character flaws. And that is absolutely not true. I mean, people are desperately trying to control their weight. They've been trying to for decades and following all kinds of plans, but they're very frustrated because they can't do it. And it's because of our inherent physiological limitations that, it, for example, we don't have the capacity to estimate volume. Just looking at, you know, a glass or a bowl, we can't guess how many calories or, you know, what's in it. We judge things on two dimensions, not on three dimensions. The, the point is that people today are not somehow less capable or competent than they were 30 years ago. People haven't changed. Our physiology hasn't changed. Our DNA hasn't changed. Our intelligence hasn't changed. We, in fact, we probably know more about nutrition than we did 30 years ago, yet more people have a problem with overweight and obesity. It's not, I don't think essentially that this is the problem of individuals. It's the environment that has changed, not individuals. And so we need to create an environment that accounts for people's limitations and have you know, portions in the right size when they're served to people, to have information at the point of purchase that alerts people to, you know, prevent those automatic reactions from taking over. So isn't that 
So let me try to summarize that before we open it up for questions. This is sort of where at least the three of you seem to be agreeing. The manual labeling is one way of getting there. It provides people with information at the point of purchase. Economists would say, yes, that's necessary to, in order to have informed consumer make in a healthy market. You would say, well, it gives them at least a psychological cue to avoid some things. And then that will move towards the portion size control. That. So a small step where there's agreement? I, I don't disagree. I, and I absolutely, there's everywhere we, you walk into the grocery store uh, and you need to get to the milk, which is a necessity, right? Uh, and you have to walk the gauntlet of aisle five, which has every imaginable flavor of potato chip known to man. And then uh, you have to make your way around the muffins that just got baked in the smell. And there's uh, and, and that's not by accident, and the things and the items that are on the end cap aren't by accident either. And um, this isn't, uh, you know, the grocery store uh, industry is, uh, like the restaurant industry, always trying to um, figure out ways to stay in business, and, you know, but, but they do make money off of um, product placement, end caps. And, you know, if you go in any grocery store and look at what's on those end caps, it's usually not oranges and apples. It's... Usually, Chips and high soda. sodium foods, and but but what do you do? And and so that's that's a reality, uh, right. and and in the and, and that happens in the restaurant industry, and it happens at home. So you know, in the restaurant industry, one one quarter of the meals are eaten um, in a commercial environment. So that I guess three quarters of the meals are eaten at home. Um, so how do you address that? How does government address that? And then how does government address the issue of product placement? I mean, I th sort of we talked about. Uh, having a license to, to sell certain types of foods. That may be one way. Uh, I'm not sure we like it uh, or I like it, but, you know, but then you know, what do you do when you go into a restaurant or into a grocery store that has an environment where you're just attacked by all these foods that are coming at you and you can't help but just grab that bag of Doritos? I do it all the time. Uh, and my kids do it all the time, which is why I avoid aisle six. Um, <laughs> but you know, that's the question. How do you... How do you move from this sort of semi-agreement here to a policy that's doable and enforceable and supportable? Good. We're here for Kim to give us the solution. <laughs> I, I think we're kidding ourselves yeah. if we're thinking government is the solution to this problem. I mean, let, let, I, not to be dismissive of the important research, I think the research, as I said at the outset, underscores why this problem is as difficult as it is to address because there isn't a silver bullet. There's no one thing that either we can do or someone else can do for us. We know we're the not the most responsible of people. We look for other people to blame. Tobacco, we blame big tobacco. Obesity, who's the bad guy? The people who make sodas, people who make fatty foods. You know, everyone's got a little piece of the problem here. Um, I couldn't agree more. It's about the environment. It's the environment that, that promotes or hinders responsible individual decision-making. And so I think government has a very important role to play in terms of supporting environments that make it easier for people to access healthy foods, to be physically active, to be responsible. But at the end of the day, it is a decision made by the individual, and we cannot regulate away this problem. We all have a responsibility to step up. And I, I frankly think incentives do matter. Um, incentives do matter. People pay attention when their pocketbook is affected by decisions they make. So it's part of the balance. It's the individual, but it's also the broader community. Okay, I think I see the sign waving the 10 after 7. Time for audience questions. So you better have really... Oh, good. There is some activity here. I'll start over here. I have a question for Jock and Condi. Um, do you think that the fast food businesses, which are in existence today, are the right ones to go into the into offering health foods? You mentioned that many of them already do, and consumers don't respond. Um, okay, is, that's the question. <laughs> do I do I think they're the right ones to to offer it? I don't know. That's not my that's not my place to uh, to make a decision. But you know, restaurants uh, they're not doing it because government told them to do it. They're not offering salads. They're doing it because customers are asking for it. The reason why, as an industry, we actually uh, sort of ended up supporting a menu labeling law was because customers were coming in saying, hey, how many calories are in the cheeseburger? It became almost a management issue after a while. Uh, and uh, restaurants, more than any other business, uh, know exactly 
what their customers want and how they want it. They get instant feedback. They're buying the meal there. In many cases, they're eating the meal there, and they're letting the waiter or the server or the person at the counter know exactly what they think about that meal, and they're making requests all the time. So when I, uh, some restaurants would sort of test. Well, you know, people are asking for salads, so we're going we're gonna to start serving salads. And then people don't buy them, and they'll stop, they'll stop uh, offering those salads. But they're, they're, doing, they're responding to customers, not government. Uh, and more than ever, if you look at most, most what you know, people would term fast food restaurants, with the exception of uh, a few, they're, they're providing healthier options. And in some cases, they're providing healthier options because the menu labeling law, because they've sort of looked at the caloric content of their, their meals, and they know that they have to post this stuff. And that there is, there is, there is a change in behavior, and we know from uh, in, um, Washington and New York, because there were some, some studies done uh, on the menu labeling laws there, which have been in effect longer than they've been in effect in California. And they found, they found that um, customers do change their, their uh, switch their choices when they look at the menu board. It turns out for the restaurant industry that they're making, ju they're making just as much money. Uh, they're, they're providing healthier options and people are just switching. So uh, when, when we were looking at what happened in New York and the decisions customers were making, um, we were looking at it from a business perspective. And there was a lot of restaurant chains that operate in New York City that were saying, we're, uh, we're looking at the metrics and people are changing their mind. But instead of ordering, ordering a big deep fried onion, they're ordering steamed asparagus. And the price point on asparagus is a lot better than it is on a deep fried onion. So the restaurant industry's doing okay at, at making some of these healthy offerings. So I, I'm not sure if I answered the question well, I rambled. Well, you know, the industry is moving faster than sometimes I like to do it because we did our uh, analysis of the fast food ban, and I was making a nice comparison here to a big sit-down chain and showing the menu offerings that a big uh, sit-down chain has was pretty awful. Uh, huge serving sizes, all this excess calories and excess everything. And between the time the paper was accepted and between the table, uh, paper was printed, that chain completely changed the menu. And none of the things I criticized was still on the menu anymore. Um, all right, <laughs> next one. Question in front. I'm very intrigued by the, the research metrics that Ms. Cohen brought up. Um, I used to be a scrawny kid. And I used to drink sugar, soda pop, candy every single day. And I was still a scrawny kid. But I did it walking home from school. What... To what extent does the research that you've seen, or any of you have seen, call that into account, and how much of it is the behavior? Obviously, kids, especially, don't walk to school like they used to, and the food offerings are not that much different. Well, um, sure, we look at physical activity, but there's a lot of myth going on about kids not getting exercise. Not true. If you look at physical activity among kids, in fact, it's over the last 20 years, if anything, it has increased. TV watching has gone down. Not much evidence about the screen time going up. Now, you're right about the walking away from home from school. That's right. That has dropped quite a bit. Uh, they have more time in organized sports. So, you know, I don't think there's, there's much action here. You hear that a lot. I think it's a red herring, the um, dramatic in decline in physical activity. Um, I think, on the other hand, if you look at the increase in food availability. You see this big jump coming in the 80s about carbohydrates. You know, if We can't answer it, definitely. But I would say uh, you look at the things that change in big ways, and it's not on the physical activity side, but it's on the food side. But you're touching on a, an important point that we, we sometimes don't think about when we think about the problem of, of overweight and obesity. Um, policymakers and, and the public don't necessarily jump to community planning and design. Um, and yet, when you look at development patterns, we, we see a lot more suburban and exurban sprawl, and, and people are further away. Homes are being built in, in manners that um, are not as readily accessible uh, by a, a bikeway or a walkway to you know, where they go to school or where they work, et cetera. So this, this idea of ensuring that, um, or doing more to promote um, safer routes to schools um, to places of work for kids and adults it is an important component of the overall effort to promote physical activity. So this, this relationship in terms of how we plan, how we grow our communities does have a, a connection 
to physical activity and, and we right. think is a, is a piece of the overall problem. And over the long term, the decline in walking to school is definitely a huge um, part. Um, but it's a long-run part and it doesn't really jive with the increase in obesity rates, right? This, is, this happened before then. And but, but I think not that, why we see the epidemic. They're, and they're, but they're need, that's a role that government ought to be uh, very active in, and that's um, investing in infrastructure that promote activity uh, and, and parks and preserves. And if you, um, I saw a, a, stu a study that rated the 50 largest cities in the country for dollars spent per, per resident on parks and preserves. And uh, Los Angeles, for instance, is number 49 of the 50 largest cities in the country. Uh, 50 is Toledo, Ohio. Number one is San Jose, California. Uh, you, know, and the, you know, it would be an interesting study to see what the correlation is between uh, uh, spending in public parks and, and preserves uh, relative to obesity. But I, you know, I think that th that's a role that government can get involved in. And, and, and I know that maybe there isn't a correlation with, or there isn't a, a, a empirical data that show that kids uh, are, are more sedentary than they used to be. But if you, when I was in school, I had PE every day. I was forced to do it. And I was talking to Michelle in my office, and she said, I remember, she remembers you know, uh, going into a period in her class of sweating from a PE, and it was something you had to do. When you're looking at elementary schools, 3.8% of the elementary schools are requiring some kind of physical activity every day. That's, that's mind-boggling. And to the extent they have an hour of physical uh, uh, education, um, only 12 minutes of it, based upon yeah. Department of Education data, is, is moderate to vigorous activity. Right. A lot of kids are in after-school programs now. Um, we have a lot of investment in after-school programs in our state, um, but there's not a requirement that physical activity be a part of that. So, you know, th there's some... Clearly, there's some places to, to go here. We have opportunities. It's, I, I, I'll be interested in learning more about your, your research that basically I'm hearing you, Roland, semi-dismiss the physical fitness piece of this. <laughs> no, you, you, and but, and I, um, that doesn't actually jive with a lot of our research, which is one of the reasons why this is such a hard issue. Yeah. There's a lot yeah, I don't think our governor would like that either. <laughs> right. He would want to pump you okay, up. Okay, time for the next question here. <laughs> next question over here. Um, I'm glad Mr. Condi touched on uh, the problem with grocery stores because last Cinco de Mayo, my husband and I wanted to make some homemade tacos and we went and looked at the price of tomatoes and we realized that it was cheaper to just go out to a restaurant and uh, have them make the tacos for us and uh, plus clean like. up all the dishes and we could even get margaritas for the price of a few um, organic tomatoes. And um, to me, this is kind of the fundamental problem with kids in the inner city. I've, I've worked in the inner cities in, in Linwood and Compton uh, for a long time. And um, I'll tell you, the families there, they don't really dine out that much. They do most of their uh, consumption at home. Uh, they, they shop at the local grocery stores like Food for Less. And when they see that uh, processed, uh, high saturated fat, high salt, high um, glucose level food is half the price of a head of lettuce then, um, of course, they're going to choose what's more economical for their family. So I'm just wondering what uh, the government's role can be in regulating that, because that just seems so upside down, you know, um, especially in the places that need it most, where I've, I've had a, a student every single year that's had type 2 diabetes, um, and the rate just keeps climbing, and I, I see more and more of it. It really is an epidemic in the inner cities. One of the things government's been doing um, through a federal program I touched on a moment ago, the WIC program, which you may have heard of, which is a supplemental nutrition program principally for um, women and, and, and low-income women and children. Um, but a major policy change was implemented last fall um, in our state that um, enabled WIC to support much healthier food products than it had in the past. So whole grains instead of white bread, low-fat um, or non-fat milk instead of uh, whole milk. Um, so things that we might all take for granted, but if you're of low income and you're reliant upon the supplemental food program and the supplemental food program limits what you can purchase, it's actually an example of an important step forward. The point I made before as well about our food stamps program uh, and, and using this card to provide access to um, healthier, more affordable fruits and vegetables is another policy direction we're we're pursuing. But, you know, frankly, I think part of it is the market. We need to create some incentives to get more um, supermarkets into these low-income communities because right now are, they are food deserts. 
Well, didn't we hear that all the junk is really sold at food uh, supermarkets, all the potato chips? And wouldn't that be a healthier choice having not <laughs> these, the these, commu these communities are reliant upon convenience stores. They're reliant on convenience stores. They, they, they are at the other end of the continuum. If the policy goal is to promote access to affordable fresh fruits and vegetables, those communities with low-income uh, families have the least access. I mean, that, that's what True. the data tell us. And so it's yeah. like, how do you create incentives to help? Not, it's not just about information and demand. It's also about incentives for supply. So yeah, you're right. Supermarkets do have unhealthy food. But I thought we crossed that threshold that we weren't going to ban unhealthy foods in supermarkets. Yeah. Question in front. Um, this might be a good follow-up question. I'm kind of curious to hear your comments, Deborah. on you talk about the physiology, how... We've always been trying, like people have been trying to lose weight for so long, but I feel like there's a lot of misinformation out there also. There's been so many diet trends, and you see so many products, low-fat this, low-calorie that, artificial sweetener here. But I think a lot of it really comes back to really giving people the right information so that when they are making food choices, they are choosing the more nutrient-dense foods, so the whole grains, the leafy grains. Um, so I'm just kind of curious in your yeah. research on... Yes, that. So I don't think it's really any mystery or people really need any education. To, you know, as long as they know that if they eat less, they can lose weight. That, that's really anybody just, you know, can follow that and lose weight. So that's, that's not the problem. People know they should, you know, not eat junk food, not eat chips, not eat, you know, candy, sodas. I mean, I don't think anyone doesn't know that. The problem is actually following through. The problem is having that in front of you and saying no to it. The problem is, is that that food is there all the time, and it's very hard for people to say no to food. And so what I'm saying is that we really need to rethink how food is presented to people and not to have it everywhere, everywhere you go, and not to have advertising everywhere you go and, and to control that so people can be naturally hungry instead of always being artificially stimulated and having to resist food all the time. I, when, when I go out and you, know, you see food everywhere, it's, you're almost like being assaulted and you can't ignore it. You can't ignore it and it stimulates you, it makes you desire it, it drives you crazy. And, and that's what we have to change about the environment. We shouldn't make it so hard for people to do something simple, which is just to eat less. We have time for two more audience questions, but I know our panels will be staying afterwards to take a few more that we weren't able to get to. Question over here. Uh, good evening. I wanted to imagine a couple of things. Um, number one, that we are on the threshold of the age of Aquarius, where whatever question the citizenry asks in the future we'll get a quality answer to it, especially from government, both at local and federal level. The second thing is, let's imagine the food industry's 800-pound gorilla or the elephant, um, whatever metaphor you choose to use, is actually here in the room today. Because there are, in the US today, literally only five small single-digit number food producers that, that wrap their goods in different uh, packaging, and, and they exist on the, the shelves of our... Uh, uh, big box uh, outlets. So in, a, in an age of genetically modified seedlings, um, steroids, uh, growth hormones, the, the supply chain continuum, um, government touches every point of that continuum. I don't think it's incidental. I think it's totally fundamental to help our people get quality foods in the right amount and just uh, one other thing, there's nothing wrong with eating food as often as you can, so long as it's the right kind of food. Any nutritionist would argue that you can snack all day, uh, every day, so long as you're eating the right sort of thing. Well, I think calories count. Calories count. <laughs> okay, one more question. Final question over here. One of the things about um, nutrition seems to be uh, neurotransmitters. And what I've seen raising three boys in the last uh, 20 years in Southern California public schools, the drugs are a huge problem. And I'm talking about kids that are on football teams that are overdosing and, and having, uh, you know, play, after playing a game, drinking a lot of beer and stuff like that. 
So I'm seeing actually drugs as a component of this that hasn't been factored in. Um, you know, I know Arnold Schwarzenegger, because I have been a coach in the schools, uh, goes on about physical education. But we can't, we, we can't control parents that are, are, are giving the kids drugs. I found in, in, the, in the community that I've lived in, only about 10% of parents aren't doing drugs. And this is an element, and I, I've done an empirical study over, over the last uh, 20 years. This is an absolutely crucial element in, in, uh, in, in, in food intake. And as you know, neurotransmitters are what stimulate people to, to eat fudge brownies and various other things. And this is a component you're not going to get in your research because the kids aren't going to talk about it. But I, I've, I've had that uh, kids over at my house. I've seen what they do, what they drink. You know, they go through 15 pounds of uh, meat a night. Uh, and, uh, you know, I won't tell you how much beer, but it's a lot. And, uh, and I, I think we have become an addicted society, and uh, we're not admitting it. So the war on drugs, after all, didn't work, huh? <laughs> uh, okay, we'll get back to it. Uh, I think it's, in some areas they were more successful than in yours. Um, I, I, hope that, uh, I, I hope that you will join me in thanking our panelists. Um, this presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.